Some years ago, I was invited to a planning meeting for what would become known as the Men's Rally in the Valley. Perhaps you've heard of it, the planners of this grand event that usually meets annually at the Cavelli Center wanted to imitate uh, what, what, is called the, what was called the Promise Keepers events, which was a large gathering of men to get together and to hear different preaching. And somehow, to this day, I don't know how I got invited to that meeting. Maybe I forget, or maybe it's in my repressed memory or something like that. And uh, I'm at this meeting, and uh, I remember an older gentleman raising his voice and says, There will be no doctrine at these meetings. No doctrine. We believe in Jesus. That's it. I thought, okay. (laughs) You've made your point. But the problem with that statement, there will be no doctrine. We just believe in Jesus is the reality. And also with that was this admonition that doctrine divides. But the reality is, is once you mention the name of Jesus, you've immediately introduced the topic of doctrine. Because there's all kinds of different doctrines or teachings about Jesus that exist. The Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet of Allah. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a divine being but not equal with the Father. The Mormons have a belief about Jesus was, uh, has ascended into deity, was once a man but ascended into deity. There's all kinds of different doctrines or teachings about Jesus. And so the obvious question has to be, which one? Because you can't have genuine unity apart from truth. You can have union, but not necessarily unity. You can tie two, the, the tails of two cats together and unite them, but you don't have real unity. Just try it. And yet, so much of the evangelical world, probably for the past 100 years, has been pushing for an outward kind of unity. Uh, You've perhaps heard of the ecumenical movement, as it's sometimes called, this push for there there to be an outward unity amongst God's people. And I I really think this is kind of falling into the air, really, of, of Roman Catholicism. Because Roman Catholicism believes that there's one unified, outwardly hierarchical church in in. in when evangelicals thinks, well, this is what we need to do. We need to all just kind of absolve all of our differences, whether denominational or differences between different local churches and just get together. It's, it's I think, falling into that evasive notion that we can have unity divorced from truth. But, I would say, Consider the time in which at least Christendom or the church outwardly was most unified. The period of the Middle Ages, or outwardly, I mean, Roman Catholicism was, was almost the only gig in town. 
And yet, how did the church fare then? Not real good. If you read, even Roman Catholic scholars would suggest it was one of the darkest periods in the history of the church. Perhaps you've even heard of the pornocracy, namely the papacy, which, uh, you know, many of the popes had various concubines and there was several popes saying that they were pope at the same time. In other words, outward unity does not necessarily equal the spiritual unity that Jesus is talking about here that he prays for. And yet at the same time, we ought not to dismiss this reality that Jesus prays for of unity amongst his people. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of the Catholic or universal church which is invisible and consists of the whole number of elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all. That Presbyterian confession of faith is confessing the unity of God's people spread throughout all of planet earth. There is a real unity that exists amongst God's people. And a unity that, that should be aspired after. But it is a spiritual unity. And so this morning I want us to spend the rest of our time considering three components of this unity that Jesus prays for so that we would experience and aim to preserve. First of all, it is a unity... In truth, look at verse 20. Jesus is praying and he says, I do not ask, I do not pray on behalf of these alone. Uh, up to this point in the prayer, Jesus' prayer has mostly been focused most immediately and directly upon those 11 remaining disciples. Remember, Judas had gone out from their, uh, from their midst at this point. And so he's praying for those original disciples, what, we would, what would later be known as the apostles. And he, pray, he says, I'm praying not for these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. And so now Jesus is, it's clear that Jesus' prayer extends beyond those original 11 to every believer who believes through the message of the apostles. And dare I say, if you are a believer here this morning, that's you. You believe the message of the apostles because where do we find the message of the apostles? We find it in the New Testament. We find it Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. You keep going on all 27 of those New Testament books. This is the message of the apostles which centers in on Jesus and his death and resurrection. So Jesus is praying for those. And then notice the request, verse 21, that they all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then notice the way Jesus repeats this request for oneness or unity. It comes up again in verse 22. The glory that, that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity. And so Jesus repeats it at least three times here. 
that those who believe through the message of the apostles would be one. That they would be one. That they would be perfected in unity. So I think we can conclude from that it's an important thing that God's people would be one. That they would be united. But then also notice the backdrop of this unity or its comparison is a unity of whom? A unity of the Father and the Son. It is a Trinitarian unity. It is what we would call a spiritual unity. But for the first point here, I want us to think about it is a unity in truth. How do I know that? Because the unity that Jesus prays for is a unity the initial step of which comes at the end of verse 20, those who believe in me through their word. In other words, the prayer for unity is for everybody who has believed in Jesus, who's believed in the message of the apostles. That's the kind of unity. In other words, if you haven't believed in the, this message of the apostles, if you haven't believed in Jesus, then there's no real, genuine unity. Not this kind of spiritual unity that Jesus is praying for. Now, we, we, we do have some commonality with everybody else on planet Earth. We are creatures created by God in His image. We're all sons and daughters of Adam. But there's no spiritual unity unless one has believed in Jesus. Not only that, but remember Jesus' prayer in verse 17. Sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. And so this unity here is a unity that's rooted in truth. It's rooted in the truth of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures. It's not merely outward unity that refuses to talk about any kind of doctrinal distinctives. But it is a spiritual unity. John MacArthur says, as noted in the previous chapter of this volume, the unity Christ prayed for is not an outward organizational unity, but the inward spiritual unity based on believers' life in Christ because of their union with Jesus Christ since the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. All believers are one with each other as well. And even if you think of the the pictures that are given the metaphors that are given of the church in the scriptures they highlight that unity right the church is the body of Jesus Jesus is the head we're the body and so we're connected to one another the the hand is connected to the forearm I want to start seeing you know foot bones connected to them but I won't go there we're all connected. Or, or you think of the, the marriage union where Jesus is the husband and the church is the bride. There's a real union there. You think of a building. There's a, there is a union. The, the bricks are part of the structure of the building. There is a unity. A flock. Jesus is the shepherd. John 10, right? 
My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And then he says in 10.16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And there's a very real sense in which the closer one is to, the closer a sheep is to the shepherd, the closer the sheep will be to one another. Right? If the sheep are scattered, they're not close to the shepherd. But as they draw near to the shepherd, there is even a greater closeness. There's a greater unity that exists amongst them. And this is a unity that is rooted in the truth of the gospel. You see, this is one of the glorious things about being part of the body of Christ. Is the commonality you have with each other. D.A. Carson wrote, Unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence of the apostolic gospel. And again, unity, apart from this truth, is elusive. In the mid part of the 20th century, one of my heroes, a Welsh preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, was asked by Billy Graham to be part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, part of the crusade that was going to be done in London. It would seem to be a great opportunity uh, and a great evangelistic opportunity. Lloyd-Jones says, okay, I'll be part of it under two conditions. First condition, get rid of the altar call. The altar call promotes a kind of decisionism that just produces a multitude of false converts. People who went through the motion, said the prayer, and haven't genuinely been converted to Jesus. Second condition, stop inviting Theological liberals who deny the deity of Christ, deny the resurrection. Roman Catholics who don't believe in the same gospel, stop inviting them to be part of this crusade and to be sitting on the same platform that you're speaking of. Well, needless to say, Billy Graham did not follow those two conditions and Martin Lloyd-Jones never was part of that evangelistic crusade. But what he was doing was highlighting that genuine unity has to be centered upon the truth of God. Has to be centered upon the gospel. It is a unity that no doubt the the churches to whom John is writing to is he telling them about Jesus. There's there's hints of this reality that that could exist even amongst people of different ethnicities. As in John chapter 4 we learned this morning in Sunday school. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. A woman of ill repute. A woman who had had five husbands and the man she was now with was not even her husband. And Jesus talks with her. Jesus tells her of the the waters of salvation that he offers her. And she hears him and she goes and tells all of her other non-Jewish Samaritan friends. And they come and hear and believe. It's highlighted even as I alluded to in John chapter 10. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. They will hear my voice. And they will become one flock 
in one shepherd. That the gospel would go beyond the walls of Jerusalem to the uttermost ends of the world. And there could be one people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We see it also in John chapter 12. When it says in verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida. And they said, sir, we want to see Jesus. And it's in that context when Jesus says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. He's going to draw all kinds of people, even Greek people. And they would be one. And this is one of the beautiful realities, again, of the body of Christ, that there is unity that transcends cultures, ethnicities, languages. I remember years ago being in the middle of nowhere in Cameroon, Africa, seemingly many miles away from civilization, and we stumbled across what looked like a church. And we talked with the, the person living in the house close by that church. And, and we found out he's a pastor. And through asking him various questions, realized he's a brother in the Lord. We didn't even speak the same language. We had the missionary there who knew French had to translate for us. But here's this person who lives in a clay hut has a different skin color, speaks a different language. But this is my brother. Why? Because he too had come to Christ. He too had understood the reality of his own guilt and sin before a holy God. He too saw his need for forgiveness. He too laid hold of the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection. He too fed upon the bread of life that's found in the Bible. And we are immediately united in spirit. Been to China. People there who speak different language, radically different culture, even different eating utensils. Still don't know how to use chopsticks. But you start talking with them, these are brothers these are sisters in the lord it transcends ethnicity it transcends culture but there's this immediate oneness you read throughout church history you can read you know uh, uh, the french protestant reformer jean calvin and, and you're reading his commentaries and he's coming to the same conclusions i am hundreds of years later I speak a different language, read a different language from a different culture. I mean, different medical practices. Calvin had kidney, well, I won't get into his medical solutions to his kidney stones, but you can imagine what the medical solutions might have been like that in, in that time period. But there's this oneness, there's this unity. Friend, do you... Do you appreciate this unity that exists amongst God's people? People from every different kind of ethnicity. People from different 
socioeconomic stratus. I mean, even in this room, some people may be truck drivers, some people may be doctors or lawyers, some people may be professors at the university, some people may be working at fast food. And yet you're here to hear the truth of God's word. You're united in spirit. And this, by the way, friends, is one of the things that makes uh, so much of what's the ideas that are floating around in our culture so toxic. Uh, What's sometimes referred to as critical race theory that seeks to pit others against one another and cause others to have grievances against others. Not helpful. It just destroys and divides. But not so in the body of Christ. There's a unity of the Spirit. It's a unity in truth. But it's also a unity in love. Notice verse 21. As Jesus prays that they would be not only for those who are those immediate apostles, but those who would believe through the message. Verse 21, notice the that. The that tells us the purpose. And then also we see a similar phrase, that, that they may be one. But then notice the comparison, that they may all be one even as. There's a comparison, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one. Just as we, talking about Jesus and the Father, are one. I in, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. The unity that Jesus prays for is compared to the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. It is a, dare I say this, a Trinitarian kind of unity. But, but obviously, then, then the follow-up question is, in what ways is the kind of unity, in what manner is the kind of unity that exists with the Trinity, can that be possible amongst God's people? Well, I think we can immediately dismiss, I do not think it's talking about a kind of, big word here, ontological unity. Namely, the essence of the Trinity is one. There are not three different gods, there is one God. There is one God, there is one essence. But, but when it comes to God's people, I mean, I'm not Dale and Dale is not me, right? There, there is, we're, we are not... Of the same essence. We're not, you know, um, Siamese twins, okay? So I don't think it's talking about a kind of ontological unity, a unity of essence that would be impossible. So then, what, what kind of unity is, is being talked about here? Well, I think there's a couple clues in the text. The first clue, I think, is in verse 22. When Jesus says, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one. He says this glory. What is this 
glory, whatever it is, it also produces this unity. And then I think the second clue is at the end of verse 23 when it says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Could it be that the glory he refers to in verse 22 may be an allusion to the Holy Spirit himself? Could be. If it's not the Holy Spirit himself, it's probably that which the Holy Spirit produces, which is the same thing that unifies them at the end of verse 23, namely the love that exists between them. This is why one of the early church teachers, Augustine, spoke of the love that emanates between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of love. And it's no wonder that when we look at the New Testament that over and over, that which the Holy Spirit most immediately produces is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Romans 5, 5, God has poured out His Spirit into the hearts of believers and He shed, shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. He is the Spirit of love. And so I think... When Jesus is saying here, I'm praying for, for those who would believe through the message of the apostles that they would be one even as we are one. He's talking about a spiritual unity that emanates because of the love that is Trinitarian kind of love. And then also I think if you compare some of the things that Jesus says prior, because notice the result which we'll get to in a minute. The result of this unity at the end of verse 21 that, that the world may believe that you sent me and then also the end of verse 22 that um, I'm sorry, the end of verse 23 that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me is similar to John thirteen thirty six when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to them, that they would love one another, even as I have loved them. And then he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. And so, the love that emanates back and forth between believers is this unity. It's a Trinitarian kind of unity. So, so here Jesus is not praying for uniformity. The Trinity is completely united, but it is not all the same. It is not a single identical unity. There's three persons, but there is indeed a unity of love. Sinclair Ferguson says, in the same way the glory the Father has given to the Son and the unity in personal diversity will come to the expression in the glory of the unity in personal diversity of the fellowship of believers. In simple terms, Jesus is praying, what Jesus is praying for is that when people encounter the church, they will see many different pieces of the puzzle fitting together and revealing 
his own face. That's good. So that when persons come to the gathering of God's people, in a very real sense, this should be the closest they get to a visible manifestation of the Trinity in the world. Because there is a love that exists amongst God's people that is a Trinitarian kind of love. And so obviously this then becomes a challenge, right? Because we love ourselves. <laughs> and as Augustine said, we're born into this world and curved us and say, turned in on ourselves. And it's in the gospel as we come to the realization that Jesus died for my sins and, 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 and he loved me and died for me and the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. Now all of a sudden we're motivated by the gospel and we want to move out in love towards others. But there's still the reality of remaining sin that can get in the way of that. But we still need to crucify that kind of selfishness, that kind of inordinate self-love that keeps us from moving out in love towards others. And so, friend, how are you doing in this area? I mean, you can't love people you don't know, so it starts there. Are you one of those come late, leave early Christians, come to get your sermon and check out and leave? Or you take time to get to know God's people, the people around you? Taking time to be involved in a, in a smaller group setting where you could get to know some others. Taking time to committing to be part of the monthly fellowship lunch so that you can get to know other people so that you can move out and love towards others. And the more that we do that, the more we will manifest that glory, that glory of love that is otherworldly. It's not normal. We live in a cold, hard world, friends. And if you haven't figured that out, just live a little bit longer. But amongst God's people, it should be family. There should be a warmth. There should be a love that exists between us. And it starts with ourselves, right? Because some of you may be sitting here saying, Yeah, amen, Matt. People should be loving me more. <laughs> if that's what you're hearing, you're not hearing me correctly. It starts with ourselves and moving out, reaching out towards others. So it is a unity in truth. It is a unity in love. And thirdly, it is a unity in purpose. Again, notice the that's, the so that's at the end of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
At the end, or in the middle of verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me. This repeated phrase, this unity that is to exist amongst God's people has a view to the watching world. To the watching world that doesn't know who God is. That doesn't know of this great love that is experienced in the gospel. This world that is lost and confused, that, 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 that doesn't even believe in absolute truth. They need to see this unity of love and unity of truth, this unity in the gospel. So that they would know that you sent me. And again, this is similar to John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that built into this prayer is the common mission of the church, the common purpose of the church, which is the common purpose, dare I say, of the Trinity, a saving message. This is what we saw even last week in John, uh, earlier on in John 17, when Jesus prayed that we would be set apart from the world. In 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. In other words, Jesus prays that we would be set apart from the world so that we could be sent to the world. And here he's praying for unity so that the world that's watching would know who God is because of our unity. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, you have made her, may have heard testimonies like this. A young woman opposed to the gospel and its lifestyle finds herself very reluctantly in a gathering of the church family of someone she knows. She hates everything she thinks these people believe. But she finds herself confronted by the question, how is it that I believe these people stand for everything I hate and yet when I am with them, and watching them, I feel that this is the way that life was meant to be lived. I see in their relationships with each other, in the harmony of the atmosphere, in the children and their parents, in the young people's relationship with the elderly, how it is that they seem to possess the very things I lack. Why do I ache inside for what they have? Of course, in a world where sin has deconstructed the foundation on which life was meant to be built, people encounter an entirely new world in a living church family. Yes, it is imperfect, but it is the world where life approximates what God meant it to be. And then I would also say the converse is true. Namely, when there is division, disharmony, bickering, conflict amongst God's people, it leaves a very nasty taste in the mouth of the watching world. 
I remember a couple years ago meeting a young person who had a, has a biblical name. And so that was kind of the point of the beginning of the conversation as we talked about his name. And that led to further conversation. He's a young man who grew up in the church. He shared with me he had, he and his family had been through six church splits. Man alive, one church split is enough for a lifetime. He had been through six. And as I continued my friendship with this person over a couple years, he has now completely turned away from the Lord, completely turned away from the truth. I can't help but think, but what all that bickering and infighting that he had experienced and watched did. Now, I understand truth is truth no matter what. I can give all the apologetic answers to why that's not a valid reason why he shouldn't be, be a Christian. But I also know what Jesus prays for here and the implications when there is disunity. It's no wonder that in the context of Paul writing to the church, he says in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. Now that's often applied in the context of marriage and that's good application, but with the original audience, he's talking to the church. When you let sinful anger to imbibe your heart it tends to bring division in the church and you're inviting Satan come to our church and destroy it friends this will indeed leave a bitter taste in the world around us but but when we apply ourselves to the mission in a very real sense, when, we're, when we are united in this purpose to reach this lost world, it, it has a way of making bickering over what color carpet we have very small and insignificant. Thomas Brooks said, discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. Thomas Manton, who by the way, I think he preached 150 sermons on John 17. I won't preach that many. He said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Friends, part of our mission is the world around us. But we have to be united. We have to deal with conflicts. We have to be quick to resolve conflicts that come among us. And they will come among us. I mean... I'm looking around the room. Nobody has reached the state of glorification yet. And so that means you still have remaining sin. And that sin is going to spill upon others. 
And so how are we going to react when that happens, when sin comes between us? Are we going to be quick to confess that sin, quick to forgive and seek forgiveness when necessary? Or are we going to let conflicts fester and grow and linger that brings about division? You think of uh, in athletics, a team that's divided on the field, there's not going to be a team that's playing very well. You think of the military, a military unit that's divided, they're not going to be doing very well facing the enemy. But also as we keep in mind the importance of the mission, it helps us to keep the right priorities in focus. And so, friend, even if you're, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian here this morning. I'm not even sure what team I'm on. I want to urge you to come to Team Jesus. Get on His team. Realize your own guilt and sin before the Holy God. Realize that you have offended this God and Jesus in His kindness He laid down his life upon the cross to take the punishment and guilt that you've accumulated and he will forgive you of everything and he will welcome you into his family. And you can be part of his team. But you need to lay down your weapons of warfare. Stop fighting against him. Submit to him and trust in Jesus alone. And then you will begin to experience the sweet unity that exists amongst God's people. It's not a perfect unity. It's a spiritual unity. It's a unity in truth, a unity in love, and a unity in purpose. The preacher Harry Ironside of about a hundred years ago, he was on a train ride in the early part of the 20th century. And he was doing his regular morning Bible reading on this train. And a German woman noticed him with his Bible open. And she said, wait, I will go get my Bible and we will read together. That's my best German accent. And so they start reading together and sure enough, another Scandinavian man notices them reading the Bible And he says, oh, wait, let me go get my Bible. Let's read it together. And as this train ride is going along uh, day after day, they began actually having kind of like church services where they were singing together, praying together. Ironside would preach to them. By the end of the train ride, the German lady said, uh, what? denomination are you? Ironside said, I, I belong to the same denomination that David did. She said, what? I didn't know that David had a denomination. And then he quoted scripture where David said, I am the companion of all them who fear you and keep your precepts. And the lady replied, Yeah, yeah, 
That is a good church to belong to. This is the unity that we have in Christ. Let's pray.